welcome to this Holy Week episode of Where Peter Is Live. Coming to you on Wednesday night, Spy Wednesday, with our regular crew. Let's bring everybody in here. We have Mike Lewis, Melinda Ribneck, and for the first time, we have contributor Nathan Tarowski joining us. Um, hello. We're going to... Hello. Hi, we're going to start... Hi. <laughs> hello. Hi. Hello, everybody. Hola. So we're going to start with the prayer because it is Holy Week and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves mm -hmm. before we dive into what we're going to talk about today. So let's just, okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Help us, Mother of Divine Love, to conform to the will of the Father and to do as we are told by Jesus, who has taken upon himself our sufferings and carried our sorrows to lead us through the cross to the joy of the resurrection. Amen. 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 Yes. And that was from Pope Francis from his Extraordinary Urbi at Orbi last year. Pulled that from one of Nathan's pieces that I reread today. <laughs> you had quoted it last year. I thought it was appropriate. So today we're getting started with Pope Francis's Holy Week plans because they're a little bit different. It's another pandemic Holy Week for us. Mm -hmm whole church. I know it's probably different for everyone here. We've had to make mass reservations and all kinds of weird stuff as we look ahead to navigate the liturgies this week. And so on the site, people will notice that our content is different, right? Mike, mm -hmm. we have a little bit more of a reflective perspective on Holy Week this week than our usual kind of commentary. We've kind of backed off on that a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. We It's been, I guess you could say, translations and reflections. Yeah, that's true. We do have a quite viral post right now. Cardinal Schoenborn of Vienna has twice been part of media interviews where obviously in the German speaking world, the reaction to the CDF documents has been a little hostile in the general culture, to say the least. And the funny thing is it's being taken by Catholic conservative media as him denying the doctrine and on the left well they're taking it as him denying the church's teaching but one side likes that and one side doesn't and so no one's actually providing the entire transcript in english it's only in the german language so we have some german readers or and an austrian actually an austrian reader too who's actually from vienna and is part of Cardinal Sean Bourne's Archdiocese. So he and, and Deacon Clayton Nickel, who is actually a local deacon from the Archdiocese of Washington, and he's a German, and he both of them have worked very generously in translating those so that you can have the full context of what Cardinal Sean Bourne was saying. But beyond that, and more importantly, actually, are the reflections on Holy Week that we have been posting. We started the week with one of our new our new rotation of, and this was, we love, we still love Father Satish. We're still friends with Father Satish, but Father Satish actually said, maybe it would be a good idea to bring in some other voices. I guess the thing is, if you're going to the same church every Sunday and hearing the same priest preach every Sunday, you don't get that variety of perspectives. So he will be taking one week and we have the other slots filled now. So this Upcoming Easter Sunday will be Angela Rasmussen, the wife of Adam Rasmussen. She has a PhD in biblical studies. We thought that having a, a woman's voice would definitely enhance our sight. So she is going to do the first weekend of the month. And then Father Mike Najim of the Diocese of Providence, Rhode Island, will be the second. 
and then Father Satish will be the third. And then Father Alex Roche, who wrote this past uh, Sunday, who wrote our Palm Sunday Reflection, will be the fourth Sunday of the week. So if you want to catch up with Father Satish every week, he still has his own website and it's linked in any of the things that he's written. So feel free to continue to follow him. Yeah, there. I know one of the kind of benefits of the pandemic is people have been exposed to a lot of different preaching. And I think we've brought that to the site, but people can stream mass from wherever and hear a homily from all over the world yeah. um, over the past year. So we're expanding well, that into a permanent feature. With yeah. I mean, the funny thing was, it was just, I, I met Father Satish and we've exchanged, I think I'd listened to one of his homily podcasts or something and just wrote to him and said, I, I thought it was really nice. And by the way, I run this site where Peter is. And if you're ever interested in contributing. And then next thing I know, he starts sending his Sunday homilies. And then I start hearing from people who like youth groups are using them, parish groups are using them, people are relying on hit, on these reflections for their... So it was like a service that we provided and we're more than happy to, to host it. So here we go. We're there branching out. We're expanding. Um, so, yeah. On that note, an online acquaintance of mine who lives in La Spezia, Italy, told me recently that he's recommended where Peter is to several of his friends and to his parish priest who, I guess, reads. reads Getting that global boost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had, I've had recommended by, I think the Pandora's box of Catholic anti-Semitism is recommended by like one of, one of the official Jesuit magazines in the Philippines, possibly. possibly oh, wow. Some, somewhere around there. Yeah, we, we definitely have a, a reach. Plus, there's like occasional hits we get from Vatican City where we <laughs> speculate it's about what, what cardinal is reading what post. <laughs> well, and, and then I, I think it was one of my pieces and one of Rachel's that we, we were getting some odd hits. And it was somebody, they didn't ask permission, but hey, who cares? It's not like we're selling the content anyway. Had translated our pieces into Vietnamese. Oh, yeah, and I remember that was... Um, so we've had Hungary, Hungarian, Vietnamese, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Mayal, the, Malayalam. The, Malayalam, yeah. So we're, yeah, people are, people appreciate our work from little, all over. little um, name dropping here, a little telling us how great we are here to begin our holy week. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to, just want to let you guys know we're in like multiple <laughs> so hit the subscribe button and happy holy week that was not the direction we intended to take this conversation but, here we are. but we were also going to talk about our reflections that we have on the site written by our regular contributors this week so matt k matt capitacunnel has one um posted today that is about unity during this holy week and melinda's was posted was that yesterday it was about i think it went up yesterday yeah it went about, up yesterday it was submitted this? yesterday, went up yesterday. <laughs> We're in a time warp right hey guys, now. <laughs> I'm going to submit an article Monday, Tuesday. Oh, here we are. <laughs> we are a well-oiled machine. Uh, but Melinda wrote about Pope Francis's Palm Sunday homily, uh, which focused on an interesting theme. It was about being filled with amazement heading into Holy Week. And do you want to talk, just recap for people who yeah, might not have gotten well, to read it yet? 
it's just definitely see like God's providence at work because I was at Palm Sunday mass and typically like I'm not this whole year of like I talk about in the article seeing so many divisions and some of the ugliness uh, within the church surface has been very scandalous in the real definition of the word like it, it's been hard to it's it's been hard to keep the faith with strength when you see that the those representing the church and the problems in the church are so great and they affect so many people. So it's just been very hard. I know I taught, I used the analogy in, in the article, but I have this image that I've constantly played in my head where it feels like the parable where the woman's like hanging on to the cloak of Jesus. Well, I swear it feels sometimes like you're hanging on to the last little thread. <laughs> the little thread of the, the tassel, right? <laughs> Right. And mind you, it's the cloak of Jesus. So that thread is strong, but it's still what it is. And so I haven't, I'm sure like so many people in one way, we're grateful to be able to go to mass because our the parish in the next town over takes really good precautions. And so mass has been opened up again in the last couple of months and we feel very safe about it. And so we've been able to go, but in another it's it's just been kind of you know hard to have those like spiritual consolations when you see some of the stuff in the church so out of nowhere i'm sure i was even yelling at my kids on the way who knows out of nowhere i get to palm sunday it's not even in my mind to have this like super fantastic holy week and i'm getting the palms and they're singing like hosanna in the highest and all the holy weeks in the past just come flooding and i just realized remember like in a spiritual kind of surreal almost way that like, this is what it's all about. This is the heart. This is about the real man who rode on the donkey and the people who were praising him. And then later that week, those of us, right, the people who would also crucify him and we would sit, you know, with him and all those things. And so it's just the tritium has just played such an instrumental role in my spiritual life throughout. And so just to have some of that like rawness and that realness that I know that I've seen of the faith come rushing back was unexpected. And so, and that it came in a very complicated time where we're trying to dissect and discern these problems in the church from sex abuse scandals to racism, even to what I've seen this year, a much needed better approach to our LGBT Q Catholics, right? So many problems. And so to see that, to feel that still amazement that I wasn't expecting was really, it was something to remind me the liturgy matters. This week matters. And this week and this liturgy comes from this church that at the heart of it is so good and so holy, right? Not Maybe not always the people, but the church, the liturgy, the worship, the God who we worship, all of that is real. And so when I came home and then basically the next day wanted to see what Pope Francis was saying on Palm Sunday, and I looked it up and his the amazement like hit me like a two by four because I was like, dude, this guy is like, saying in much better, like nicer language, these things that like I had in my heart that like I wasn't able maybe to even identify or articulate at the time. And he talks about the amazement of particularly the liturgy, right? So that was the first thing. And I was like, ding, 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 I'm supposed to read this. So I kept reading and the amazement he talks about comes from when we don't just admire Jesus from afar, right? We can admire Jesus as a nice guy, da, da, da. But the amazement comes when we really let him challenge our, our uh, challenge us in real ways and to become new. And that's what a lot of this year has been for me is challenging the things that I, my perspective on so much in ways that, yes, have cost. And so, yeah, so the 
article's up. Pope Francis's homily is better than the article, but that's linked to in the article. I know Mike's Mike's side. You did a great job editing, Mike, <laughs> but the Pope is still better. So, <laughs> but however, yeah. So that's what I was experiencing, and just yeah. wanted to go. And Matt Matt Capodacanal Capodacanal Matt Capodacanal is our. I think our, it's Capodacanal. I, I he is name our. Is Matt, LOL. He is our. Sorry. Uh, that was an inside joke, everyone. That would take three hours to explain. Um, Sorry, I had to. I relished this moment. Really. I, okay, go ahead. I gave him the title of, of staff apologist because I thought every, you know, or Catholic organization needs one of those. So, but it's in scare quotes. It's not staff apologist. Um, we, really don't, we don't believe in the apologetics movement. I'm just, no. Okay. Yeah, I do apologetics all the time. I know. I'm being silly. Okay. What were you going to say, Mike? I was going to say, hi, Jeannie. Look. Oh, is Jeannie Gaffigan comments? Look, oh, there's yeah. Jeannie. Hi. <laughs> Shout Jeannie. out. Hi, Jeannie. Okay. Hello. You caught, us at, a, you caught us at a bad moment, Jeannie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the worst moment. What are we talking Linda, about? It sounded like um, what Pope <laughs> Francis Belinda. said just resonated yeah. really well with what you had experienced mm -hmm. and put words to, to an experience that you had had, which is always like a really big grace to me, especially, I know we were talking about this before as moms who are like, the week before a holiday, we are like making stuff happen, like making sure everyone has clothes for those cute Easter photos and making sure everyone has goodies for their basket. And we're not really in the frame of mind necessarily to really enter into the Triduum. So when God like just, pings you on the shoulder or just it reminded pulls me you of over with tears. Yeah. Yeah. Like when, before all the kids, when I actually had time to pray during Holy Week. No, but yeah, no, it was, it was good. Yeah, for sure. It was good to be able to, yeah. I think as moms, especially we stop, we, we can't rely on like spiritual consolations all the time because there's so many needs constantly. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, don't worry about all that stuff. Just worry about the spiritual side. And then you're like, yeah, but then there's no Easter dinner. There's no candy. <laughs> the kids are naked for church. Like what there are. So it's just this constant battle. Gosh, I'm not being prayerful enough during Holy Week. And oh, wait, then my kids, they don't get their Easter candy. And yeah, so not that it's all about the candy, but the candy does help. <laughs> So candy is important. Yes. And the eggs. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Who's going to die? The eggs. So, and people are like, those things don't matter. And I'm like, actually they do a little bit. Like it does matter. So for children, like drawing our, like drawing other people into being able to experience Holy Week requires that we try to think about what will actually speak to my child and not just thinking, okay, I'm going to make these liturgical plans for all these activities we're going to do and foist them upon my family, but I'm going to consider what might speak to my kids or what might spark like Easter joy for them and really shape their experiences of the season and of Holy Week in sort of memorable ways. I know last year, like we did a lot of candles like during Holy Week and for the Easter vigil, like at home with our kids and they still remember like fire, like things like that just make an impression on kids. And that sense of amazement that for us, it's more of, okay, God is pulling me over when I'm at mass or I'm having this spiritual constellation. But as a parent, you're having to provide an opportunity for that to a child. And that can be difficult and <laughs> training. Because but 
physical creatures too. And so the physical things we do also. I know I make fun of liturgical cupcakes and we that's the running joke is I'm never going to be the Instagram Catholic mom that's got your liturgical rollout. But that being said, some of the stuff does matter. And it's, I was going to, I, I think I still will tonight. I was going to tweet out a couple of things that we do under the disclaimer that if you don't have the time or the stress or whatever, like, again, moms and dads, we have enough pressures not to worry about like, having to do a to-do list. But there are some simple things like on Holy Thursday, we, and this is something you can do in the pandemic, especially if you can't go to mass. It takes five minutes, light a candle and have one kid or you read the gospel reading of the washing of the feet and have maybe dad, mom, wash the kid's feet with a bowl. Mm -hmm. Like it's, We've done that every year and that's beautiful. And sometimes the kids are like, well, we want to wash your feet now. And we're like, what the heck? You know, <laughs> but it's about just teaching the kids just briefly like that we are servants to each other and that kind of thing. And so there's just very small things that I may tweet out later under the disclaimer that it doesn't pressure anybody. But it, those things do help. They really do help. So, yeah. So well, looking ahead, no, sorry, yeah. you're a hundred times more organized than I am. I, we're just, we're <laughs> just kind of ring true. it. <laughs> That's exactly the disclaimer I want to add is that yeah. you can't take a picture of this like one little five minute moment we had with our family and you don't see the other 23 and a half hours I, where we're in total chaos. I have been married for almost 16 years. <laughs> And, Quick math. and let me tell Quick you, math. this will be the Christmas where we send out cards. I <laughs> I promise you, this year, that, Mike. this will be the okay. year. I have never sent out a Christmas card. Well, I sent out a Christmas card uh, to my friend Meredith, who actually the same friend Meredith who co-wrote that piece on indigenous spirituality with me. I sent it to her. It got returned to sender because something was wrong with the address. I took a picture of it, sent, texted her the picture, asked her if the address was right. She said what it was. She said it was. I wrote out an envelope again. I sent it again. It got returned to sender again. I thought maybe her postal carrier can't read my handwriting. I had a, a family member make like a label to put on the envelope. You know, do it up. So really much. I See, sent it's so it much again. <laughs> It got you lost me a minute ago. You now, lost me. Now I'm going to just send it to her next year. Her address has changed since then. <laughs> you just, just hang on to it. You can recycle yeah, it. I'll send it next That's year. I definitely commend you forever. I'm a big fan of the group text on holidays <laughs> and not sending them myself. I still haven't figured out how to do that. But like how to reply. I just like reply to everybody. Reply just, all and that kind of covers hey, it. Happy Easter. Funny emoji. Yeah. I don't even have to type oh. the names in. My, we do my, have a bunny. So my, this my, year, yeah. we will do an Easter picture with a bunny. Sorry, I had to get that out. This year, I, I did Easter bunny. My, yes, my, dad, my dad's best guess about 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 the the letter is Michael appreciate this. I'm not sure if anyone else will. Is that my friend lives in a wormhole to the gamma quadrant and it just gets thrown through time That's, and space and sent back to. When we start our catholic nerd podcast that'd be a good anecdote you to share during catholic that one nerd we'll have a separate <laughs> catholic nerd stream okay we will adam uh, rasmussen oh, and, and david lafferty and you and i we can talk about anyway go ahead rachel so all of all of our easter or our holy weeks are going to be different this year and pope francis's schedule is also going to be different than his usual he's going to have the chrism mass tomorrow with representatives of the priests of rome rather than having all several hundred of the priests cardinals and bishops who preside in rome 
at St. Peter's. I know, Mike, you have commented that like in the past, Pope Francis's Holy Thursday homilies directed at priests have been pretty like pointed about yeah, well, priesthood. So, Do you have any yeah, just, insights I mean, about what we might hear? Yeah. Yeah, just a few things. Like I was just talking about the various things that in one of our planning meetings, we were discussing the different things maybe to expect from Rome during Holy Week. And I think I, I wrote a piece a year or two ago about how a lot of people, Pope Francis has this reputation where they say, oh, he says insulting things about priests who wear cassocks, or well, he calls them little monsters, or, and really what it is, is like, he's saying to priests, you don't want to be a little monster, but it gets twisted into Pope Francis calls all priests monsters. But if you actually, where you most see Pope Francis's thoughts on the priesthood have traditionally been his the the chrism mass which is the the mass it's every diocese has one traditionally it's held on holy thursday but it it can be earlier in the week because bigger dioceses and priests need to get back to their parishes on thursday but it's when the bishop of the diocese blesses the sacred oils that will be used in the parishes for the sacraments for the rest of the year so he's always had some very profound messages just about the priest as a servant his appreciation for priests for the work they do for the things that they do that don't get noticed i think that's the thing i think he doesn't like these signs of grandiosity that that priests that some priests celebrity priests or, or loudmouth priests or, um, you know, priests who, who are regularly praised for uh, or, or given endorsements or given platforms. He has a real appreciation for the, the ones who, are, who really, truly know their people and who accompany their people. And it's funny because I, I, I really do look forward to every Holy Week with Pope Francis. I was just talking about how one Palm Sunday in 2014, he threw away, he, you know, tossed aside homily, his prepared remarks, and gave an Ignatian reflection on who are you? Who are you to the Lord? And he walked through all the characters, all the people who appear in the passion narrative. And it's like, were you the centurion or the centurion? Were you Pilate? Were you the guards? Were you Simon of Cyrene? Like who, where do you place yourself in that story? And reading it slowly and reflecting on it, it was very meaningful. There's also his Holy Thursday Mass, the Lord's Supper, where he traditionally has gone off-site. It was a really big break in precedent when he did that. The very first Easter, or the very first Triduum as Pope, he went to a youth prison and washed the feet of 12 prisoners, including, I think, two women and two Muslims, or four women and two Muslims, including non-Catholics, and that caused quite a stir. Last year, his Easter Vigil homily, which was about a church that that actually shows compassion and a, a church where Catholics are. He said, imagine a church, how beautiful it, it is to be Christians who offer consolation, who bear the burdens of others, and who offer encouragement, messengers of life in a time of death. And that piece moved me to, to write that night, just like why aren't we encouraging to one another? Why do we feel the need to tear down other Christians? Anyway, so I just, I'm just looking forward to what, what he has to say during the Triduum. It's always exciting when the Holy, the Good Friday 
stations are always written by i think this year is being written by children last so year it was teenagers yeah last year it was written by prisoners he's had a married couple write it he's had doctors i think one year so it's always he wants to bring in and different perspectives and yeah so that's i guess one of the perks of the of the pandemic is not the perks but if you are locked down or if you are or if you are homebound then go to vatican news and follow the events there exactly and i know today that he had his regular wednesday audience and he gave a short catechesis on the triduum he went through each day with a little short lesson about each day of the triduum so holy thursday good friday holy saturday and then he spoke about the easter vigil and he raised some really interesting points i know melinda you were saying that what struck you is he talked about money and the evil of money yeah yeah. He talked about it just it was just a point I had never even considered. He talked about the guards who had seen the tomb empty and who had seen Jesus, you know, risen from the dead and the fact that they still carried on their work. It didn't move them. And that again goes back to the amazement issue. They weren't open to being amazed. And he pinpoints the reason to being money, the fact that they were paid to be doing this job and that you could only have one God, right? The scripture that talks about only one God and instead of two gods, money and God, right? And so I, it was just something that I hadn't considered. And I think, again, the last year or two has just been eye-opening for kind of breaking out of the bubble, maybe that I would like to live in and seeing that so much of the destruction in the world, I mean, even by those who are even Christian, a lot of it is motivated, you know, by money and power and those types of things. So just to see, again, I guess he's good at pointing to those characters in the story and what they have to teach us. And just, yeah, meditating on the fact that someone could have seen the risen Lord. We assume that if you saw the risen Lord, you would you would be like moved. But are there other things in your life that, that cause you not to be close to that amazement? His enemies saw him. And that's then the quote were, from, yeah, from that's the quote. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was a pretty sharp thing to say, right? There, It just was a very clear point to make and I was taken aback by it. Yeah. And I think if we're going to apply it to our lives, it's this idea of what stops us from being amazed at the risen Lord. Like what's, what stops us from converting? our hearts so well the the god and money thing has been on my mind a lot in the past few years because of my work situation i wrote about this a little over a year ago as part of my loneliness today series for where peter is i, I wrote this piece about unemployment and underemployment among young people and my at the time very tenuous work situation i was like a super part-time substitute teacher. I was actually getting paid more to translate Japanese Tolkien fan comics than I was to substitute teach. And so I, that, that, that's ever since then, this idea that this life I'm leading isn't really a money-generating life has been weighing on me. And I think we live in a society that even among supposedly anti-materialistic or anti-consumerist or even anti-capitalist people, there's still this, this focus on the material, this focus on money. This isn't an original observation, of course, but what helped me with that was some of the early, another Francis, St. Francis, some of the early Franciscan writings. There's this one called, I think it's called something like the Spiritual Marriage of St. Francis and Lady Poverty that just has this like Lady Poverty, the allegorical character, just goes in this tirade 
added a bunch of friars, which just goes, do not be motivated by accumulating wealth. Do not get involved in the business world. Do not lead your life, basically, in a way that's oriented towards what I guess our parents or grandparents' generation called the rat race. And yeah, I think just connecting that to Pope Francis's observation in this audience today, I think there's a definite through line of what we might call Franciscan teaching on poverty and wealth that I found very helpful in my own life, even now that my work situation is, is somewhat better than it was a year and a half ago. Was that Dante? It wasn't Dante. It's an anonymous oh. friar who I believe was a contemporary of Dante. It does sound a little like that. Yeah, the lady poverty thing yeah. just reminds me of Dante. Well, and Francis, yeah. Francis himself wrote about lady poverty. So, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Because in in the Paradiso, at the end, when he sees the Empyrean, he sees Saint Francis locked in an embrace with lady poverty in the like, mm-hmm. rose-shaped auditorium of saints surrounding surrounding the Trinity. Yeah, and Pope Francis just issued an apostolic letter about Dante. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Which Melinda also like, wrote about I, last I, week. I oh my gosh. Which I wrote about. I've heard um, like the greatest hits of it. I still need to sit down and go through the whole thing. It's it's beautiful in the sense that Dante's life was he was ostracized. He was literally exiled from this community. And mm-hmm. then and that was very wounding to him. And from the wound from that woundedness, he was able to write about things that transcended his own experience to relate to a variety of things like hypocrisy, ostracization, like all of these things created the this writings that still are relevant today in different ways. But but yeah, it was funny because when I wrote that piece, Rachel, I was like, okay, Rachel and I were joking because it's okay. The Pope has written about Dante. Now, Pope Francis is like my man because he is like so practical, right? And he it's all about like how you apply things to daily living. So I was like, okay. Now in this, at the end of the letter, he does call on people to review Dante's work, right? And I don't have that much. I have some familiarity with Dante, but I was like, okay, how can we apply this to like our lives And then that's when it hit me to this whole how Dante was able to grow from the sufferings and the experiences that, you know, that could be emulated by us as well. The common thread, yeah, the common thread is poverty and in the Christian life and lived in different ways. So the material poverty and then the poverty of being excluded and exiled even. And so I think that's what we come back to in even the audience today, where he makes us realize that we... We need to free ourselves from these attachments to money and realize there are ways in which we are being paid to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And we need to be attentive to that and the grasp that money can have on us if we aren't poor and experiencing that poverty. Nathan, you're going to add something about Pope yeah, Benedict. Which about, I it was about the Dante thing. Benedict the Fifteenth, the the World War One era, wrote a uh, hundred years ago, like almost to the day, an apostolic letter on the 600th anniversary of of Dante's death and I I haven't read that one in full either but I think I would like to read that one alongside Pope Francis's 100 years later and see if there's you know common threads in the 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 papal theology of Dante or the theology of the divine comedy over the past 100 years 
So another topic we are planning on discussing today kind of ties into this poverty of not just material poverty, but poverty of spirit and poverty in our lives and like limitation that we experience and the vulnerability of sharing about our own limitations and our own experiences with others. And I think all of us, Nathan, you were talking about your loneliness series last year and your post about underemployment. And I know that all four of us here have written about our own kind of experiences of just really vulnerably, like. Melinda has posted about her experience of being a victim of assault, and I wrote about an experience of grief, and Mike most recently has written about his experience with glaucoma and upcoming procedure for that. So I think that this is something that is all on our minds as we move into this Holy Week. And something I was thinking about as we were getting ready for this stream was that how Pope Francis's own, like, Pope Francis is what brought together, basically where Peter is. And the site is not only a place where we share what he talks about and what he teaches the church, but where we also begin to share how that has informed our own spiritual lives, our own experiences. I think that's something that's really beautiful about what can happen when you do open yourself to the Pope's teaching and to the way he has of teaching us um, that you can be led to share openly because that's where we can really have that solidarity that he reminds us to have. So Mike, do you wanna do you wanna share? Maybe not everyone has read your recent post, a blind eye, about what you're going through. But you Yeah, so it was something like I didn't really know whether I should write about it or, or if it was worth writing about it. And then I kind of just hammered out maybe a little bit of a stream of consciousness about the last several months of my life. Basically what, what happened was about seven or eight months ago, I started to notice a little spot in my, in my left eye. And at first I, I thought I chalked it up to, was it dry eye? Was it when I would like, I, I wear contact lenses. So at night when I put on my glasses, I have a very old pair of glasses and they're scuffed up. And I'm like, I, I, I would keep saying, oh, I need to get new ones. There's like a, they're scuffed up on this side. It was just this very faint little blind spot. And then I started to realize after a couple of incidents, uh, uh, my night vision started going. I tripped over a pile of bricks that was like right in my path. And it, I just didn't, like I, it, I did not see that it was there. It was a really, it was really freaky. And so I decided, okay, well, I, it had been a while since I had made an eye doctor's appointment and I feel bad because they say you're supposed to go every year. And it had been six, seven, eight years <laughs> since no. it, and I had just been reordering my contact lenses off an old prescription year after year. And I didn't, I just kept thinking I had moved. So I'd need to find a new eye doctor. And anyway, it, it just finally go to the eye doctor and check my eyes and they're like, your eye pressure is over 40, supposed to be under 20. Not, I don't, but these numbers don't necessarily mean anything to anybody. And then I did a field vision test and it was basically like, you have significant vision loss in, in your left eye and your optic nerve on your, in your right eye looks just as bad. And this is, this looks pretty bad, but you know, we'll have the, you see the specialist and see what's going on. And so three months later, which brought us to last Thursday or two, two Thursdays ago in the specialist's office and, and he's doing all kinds of tests. And basically he tells me 
you have a very serious case of glaucoma and it's to totally, I don't fit into any of the categories. I'm risk factors. I'm, I don't have thin corneas. I'm under 65. I'm not African-American. I don't have sickle cell anemia. I don't have heart disease. I don't have any of the risk factors. I don't have a family history of it. And he's, I, I have had patients younger than you before, but you're currently my youngest. And it's just like, why me? Why now? Why this? Um, All the things we ask ourselves when bad things happen. Exactly. Us, and, and, we think but, we're and good so, people and it shouldn't be this way. So I guess, I guess the thing is one of the weird things though about, so anyway, I'm having a, a procedure done on Thursday. I'm essentially, I'm for all intents and purposes blind, like legally blind in my left eye. I can still see colors and light, but my, but basically what this surgery is drops aren't doing a good enough job of bringing down my eye pressure. So the surgery is supposed to basically help my eyes regulate the pressure better, the drain better. And, and so I asked him, I was like, well, what's, what are we looking at? What's the prognosis? What are we talking about? And he basically said, well, assuming you respond to treatment, I, I can fairly confidently say that we can keep the vision loss to a minimum for maybe 10 or 15 years. And then, but they're always new. They're coming up with new research, new treatments all the time. And there's all this exciting new research, but it's okay. Well, that'll bring me to my early fifties, um, <laughs> early to mid fifties. It's like, I don't need to see after 50, right? What, what else is there? To, by then you've seen it all. I, I don't know. No. But then the other thing is though, it's, I write a piece and this is a thing when you write something where you're vulnerable mm -hmm. and maybe this is something that the rest of you, uh, maybe if it's the feedback First of all, overwhelmed by the feedback, overwhelmed by the kind words and the prayers and priests saying that they'll that they'll pray they'll pray for me at mass. A couple of families said they would pray rosary for me. It is it oh. is really it is really tough when you're in those situations where you're vulnerable, like to receive the love and care of other people. Yeah. That can feel really uncomfortable. They're so. the hardest. They are the hardest responses. Like I, I I'm more comfortable with trolls than like people <laughs> oh, like yeah. saying kind things. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Like yeah, it is hard. I feel like now if I don't go blind. I'll let everybody down, you know, or something. <laughs> I, I mean, because it's, it's, yeah, it's a possibility. Like basically what he said, if you don't get treatment within six or seven years, you won't be able to see, but because there is treatment now and there are ways to, to slow the progression of it. It's, I don't know, but it also felt, I don't know. I think it's a way to evangelize. I think it's, I think that people need to see the humanity behind people. I'm more than just a Twitter account. I'm more than just a guy, a goofball who makes Muppet faces. Tap water in a- Oh, in a only plastic. water today. No, yeah, no Salimo red energy water. drink. No red. I'm gonna, I meant to look and see if there was blue energy drink, but I didn't get around to it. But maybe next week I'll you be drinking. Well, next time I'll be drinking blue. I feel like I was feeling it too. And then I'm looking around. I'm like, I don't have my coffee this week. Is this like a Holy Week thing we're doing? Where we're like, we'll come in here and like Water. just be crazy and messy and not like super hyped. Yeah. No, it's real. But then the thing is, it's like other times you'll run into things where people, like when I wrote about my mom and losing my mom and some of the difficulty in that relationship, I got a lot of, I got a lot of people who were really moved by it. Uh, a lot of people. The reason why I opted to write that was because people were, because I knew that 
I wanted to give voice to people who were in that situation and not many people were who had loved ones yeah. who had fallen into this anti-Francis mindset, the Vigano Taylor Marshall world. And at, at the time that you wrote it, it wasn't, this was still when a lot of the more mainstream like pro-Francis Catholic outlets were saying, oh, it's a loud minority. Yeah, exactly. Well, my, my original pitch to America Magazine was a response to a Jim Keane article when President Trump tweeted out Vigano's open letter to him. And he and Jim Keane basically said, pay it no mind, don't pay attention to it. And I'm just thinking, okay, if you're somebody who works in Manhattan and hangs out with Jesuits, and I don't mean to say this in like the worst possible way but it's you don't you can't speak to what's happening in suburban catholic america mm -hmm. like this is widespread since i've started where peter is i don't know those of you anyway yeah and and then like within three or four months after that there was the whole like, and this wasn't specifically catholic but there was the whole like how i lost this or that loved one to QAnon genre of uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, 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 feel, it felt to me when those started um, popping up, almost like Mike's America piece about his mother was a, almost a spiritual forerunner to that. And we lost Belinda. I don't know if that was intentional. If she comes back, we'll add her back. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens when people share about the loss of your mom and, and the way that affected you, or even share about your physical limitation is there's a lot of an impulse to either deny that. Okay. So there's the good level of where people are expressing a lot of care and concern and love that can make us feel uncomfortable. But then there's also like denial and like blaming of you for ruining, ruining your own relationship or coming in and trying to fix things for you. So like here, I don't know if you've gotten on the receiving end of like recommendations for how to heal your glaucoma as if your doctor hadn't reviewed thoroughly all the possibilities for you. But we have these impulses in us when someone shares vulnerably, okay, this is making me uncomfortable too. So I'm gonna like, just try to fix it for all of us. Oh yeah. And it's funny. Cause like, I know when my dad had cancer, we got so many emails of how you can cure his stage four renal cell carcinoma with with baking soda and lemon juice it's like <laughs> that detox would fix it yeah exactly. exactly so yeah that's definitely people it's almost well it's, if you're if you're the if you're the person at if you're the person in mourning at a wake for example you're the person who's on on stage like you've got to greet all the people you've got to Thank talk them. to them and give them and when really all you want to do sometimes is, is pull the covers over your head mm -hmm. and anyway but I think that Pope Francis has been very honest about his humanity. And like Nathan has written before about how it's just like when Pope Francis, I remember, I, and not to like John Paul II, it was always like, oh, he's in great health. He's doing well. Like they covered up his Parkinson's disease, even though he mm -hmm. clearly had it for- it's Clearly you know, deteriorating. For right. years. Yeah. And then he couldn't speak for the last like, week or, or for the last mo few months of his life but then they were like yes and his last words right before he died were i will now go to the house of my father and i'm like did they maybe he did but it just seemed like to me they wouldn't ever say even though it was clear to everybody else that he was deteriorating whereas pope francis oh he's got bad sciatica so he's going to be out for a week yeah he overshares you know? about it in plain english 
Yeah. I know you've written about that, haven't you, Nathan? Yeah, when, you when, when Shinzo Abe, the immediate past prime minister of Japan, resigned because of, I believe, colitis, some other like very painful chronic health condition, I wrote a piece that ended up with the title, What We Can Learn from Chronically Ill Leaders. And it was basically about that. It was about the uh, Abe's kind of recognition of his his humanity and his vulnerability in stepping down. And, you know, Fran- Francis's recognition of the same with his sciatica and john paul ii of course eventually you know just saying yeah they said yeah he has parkinson's he's on his he's on his way out yeah so i the yeah basically just the idea that these very by any standard very successful powerful influential people were just having to admit that their, yeah, their, their bodies weren't cooperating, their minds in some cases weren't either. They just had these frailties, these vulnerabilities. That, it's just very human. I yeah. think that's one of the things that the modern communication age has made inevitable. Like Franklin Roosevelt, they hid the fact that the president of the United States was in a wheelchair. Well, I mean, people with FDR knew that, they, they knew in the abstract, oh, the president has difficulty walking unassisted. But they didn't see it. They didn't see the Secret Service carrying him up the steps of the Capitol like a sack of potatoes at his inauguration. It, because, yeah, there, there's knowing in the abstract, oh, yeah, FDR is not in great health. And then there's the vulnerability, really. Didn't Pope Francis also talk about how he received like counseling at one point early on, like years yeah. ago? Yeah, like, he has an appreciation for psychological support mm-hmm. yeah that he's expressed yeah. multiple times i think i believe he received like the care of a counselor like when he was exiled completely but mm-hmm. when he was on the outs with the jesuits in argentina i think mm-hmm. after he was demoted mm-hmm. he yeah, went through, the i believe there. that's when that happened but yeah. Even with like contemporary media, there is a sense in which like, I didn't realize how much Francis's sciatica affected him until my husband and I, a few years ago, it was 2018, we actually went on a pilgrimage to Rome for Holy Week and we were in St. Peter's for the major liturgies and he's just like shuffling down the aisle. And as the week went on, he got even you know slower and more tired looking. But I know that... I believe it's Good Friday during the Passion of the Lord service. There's prostrations of the celebrant Mm -hmm. in front of the crucifix, like the congregation kneels and then the priest Mm -hmm. prostrates himself. And Pope Francis does that. And he's like down on the ground and then requiring help to get back up. But then I could tell watching the video replays that like the video kind of zoom out as he was trying, struggling to get Mm -hmm. back up to still conceal like the difficulty he was having. But it's just really Mm -hmm. apparent to me being there how difficult it was for him and how painful it was for him to Mm -hmm. actually just engage in this ministry. And we saw it too when he went to Iraq last month, how slow he was in some places and how much it seemed to be bothering him. Yeah. And he even said he enjoyed the traveling, but and, and getting back it, out on the yeah. road, but he's I feel a lot more tired than I did yeah. two years ago, like the last yeah, time he went somewhere. Japan and Thailand. Yeah. And he and he actually I don't think he was the he wasn't the first pope that that was open about that vulnerability because Benedict, who was so close to John Paul II, and maybe was a little bit critical of what was go- how John Paul was being treated or how he was being presented in this sort of dishonest way about 
I don't know if that's the right word, but the PR around him was that everything was fine or that, oh, he's totally alert or whatever. Whereas Benedict, he, remember he got that that moving platform that he would ride to go up the aisle of St. Peter's during that, liturgies? No. No, yeah, and, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Playing. He was like, put a conveyor belt in there. I'm not doing <laughs> it no more. And I'm then, not playing with it's you. It's a long aisle. I do yeah. not blame him. They should be. Yeah. It's so much bigger than even the other great churches of Italy that when I was in Rome, I kept thinking the Via della Conciliazione was shorter than it was because I was comparing it to the size of a, the church at the end of it. And I was underestimating the it's scale. Yeah. It. And I think, and so this is, so Benedict, obviously he resigned for reasons of tiredness. And, and the, the amazing thing is he's still, he's been an ex-Pope longer than he was Pope. Yeah. And, but here's the thing. And this is what I think he appreciated that maybe the Vatican is always a little bit far farther behind than the rest of us uh, or than the rest of society when it comes to making these adjustments. Vatican radio finally turned on in, in 1930 or something, 30 years after radio was mainstream. Resistant railroads. In the, in the yeah. And I think the, I, but the nature of modern leadership is such that people today, because of television, because of radio, and now because of social media and the internet, we expect to hear from our leaders. We expect to mm -hmm. see our leaders. We expect our leaders to, and I don't know if it's, I think in a lot of ways, it's a good thing because we see the humanity or we can see the humanity of our leaders. It's funny though, because he, I think he appreciated, I'm too tired to continue doing this job. I'm getting too old to do what a Pope needs to do to meet the demands <laughs> of the church today. And, and the fact of the matter is, and, and this is part of one of the things that we try to teach and stress at where Peter is, is that obviously every Pope has different gifts and every Pope has different talents and does certain things better than others. But no matter who the Pope is, the Holy Spirit is still guiding and protecting the church. It's still Christ's church. The Pope is still the successor of Peter. The Pope is still the vicar of Christ. So if the Pope steps down, God gives the church what we need. And I think ultimately when Benedict resigned, I, when Francis was elected, I was very hopeful. And I think we accept the circumstances that we're in now. I've heard various commentators lament the day that Pope Benedict stepped down because of the horrible, the horrible Bergoglio who took over. But I think in reality, it was a good thing, even though Pope Francis is getting older too. And I know he's open to the idea of resignation. It's a good question about whether or not he plans to do it. He said that he plans to die in Rome. Now, I don't know if he means by that, that he plans to die as Pope, or if he plans to take over Benedict's old apartment. He said I, I, something like, I will die in Rome as Pontiff or Emeritus, which... Okay. Yeah. So I, I think he appreciates that too. I think he's going to go at it and continue to be Pope as long as he can. But if he feels that he can't continue and if he can't continue to do it effectively, if he can't get by with more than a week off here and there, I wouldn't be surprised if he did step down. We know as a Jesuit, oh, he's always discerning. So uh, now they're going to Anybody who hears it now, Mike, is going to be quoting you all over Twitter. Mike Lewis says the Pope is going to resign. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I Do think it not? would increase that's our web traffic. Mike... So. Right. That's Just not what Mike is saying. Where that's not at all. 
What am I, I say? have absolutely no inside information whatsoever. No idea. I have in no idea. Inside think, the Vatican. I, I think it's a big leap to make. And so I really don't want us to make that leap because it's just so everybody wants to take everything about this Pope and twist it and blow it up. But I will say that the point here is that Pope Francis is honest about his vulnerabilities right and his and, limitations right and his limitations yeah. in ways that yeah i don't think have been as much in the past and one thing that i'm questioning as i'm listening to this is that is some of this come from maybe this catholic spirituality of us not like um of somehow losing merit from your struggles the more that it's talked about or shown to others because i think for me personally it's been, I remember a couple of years ago making a very conscious decision to allow myself to be vulnerable and honest about things that I like to keep to myself because it's my spirituality and my whatever. And I was raised, not raised, but I like was formed spiritually initially in this kind of study of the mystics and this kind of idea that to suffer in silence was noble or whatever. And so I wonder if some of this is some of this kind of plays into this idea of this kind of Catholic spirituality where we're supposed to take on sufferings and i don't know i wonder if that I think, are you talking about offering it up yes like that like mentality yes without yes i think it's also I, american though too like yeah. because yes. the thing is imagine like if a president got up there and said i'm facing a really tough decision and i need to discern what the best way to go is and whether or not he'd get slaughtered by, by talk radio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I think the West, yeah. the West values a very like individual merit achievement based like system, right? Where again, you shouldn't rely on the community. You must be at all times. Any dependence is seen as a bad thing. Weakness is seen as a bad thing. And it's highly individualistic. That's some of the cultural makeup of, of the West. So and that's not actually the Catholic view of, but I wonder, it's not at all. Right, it's not part of that. And I think that should be obvious, especially during Holy Week, because I think so often we get it backwards where like Jesus entered into our suffering to share it with us, not to give us a burden. And now it's our job to go and just suffer without sharing it with anyone. No, God came and decided he was going to share in our suffering. And that's what we can reflect on during Holy Week. And that also plays a part in how we understand leadership in the church. God decided <laughs> that he was going to empty himself, take mm -hmm. the form of a slave and become man as Jesus Christ. And then Jesus established this church. And so he trusts this incarnate church, which is human, which is limited, which is finite to carry on his work in the world. And I think sometimes we do have those expectations. Well, we shouldn't be limited. We should be able to do things that God told us to do without any limitations and without any problems. But that's not actually the reality of what the church is. In the I met world. one of my best friends when I made a post on some website pointing out that when Christ is resurrected, it doesn't get rid of the, the wounds in his hands or his side. Mm -hmm. um, he's resurrected. He's not healed. Mm -hmm. Right. And... There's a lot for us to all ponder and reflect 
on that this week as we enter into the Triduum tomorrow. We will be having some more reflections on the site all through the next few days. We might have some just quick posts highlighting some of Pope Francis's preaching and just some perspectives on that. And then you can expect a return to our regularly scheduled commentary and excitement next week. Rachel will be managing the, uh... <laughs> send all your complaints to me yeah don't bother mike lewis so if everyone would keep mike in your prayers next week for the success of this eye procedure that would be much appreciated and do you want to do the boilerplate about if you like us subscribe yeah uh, so... our patreon all that stuff if you want to support the work of where peter is and keep the the live streams going and the articles and the podcasts and the, the study guides and help build up this, this work that we're doing. If you believe in what we're doing, you can become a Patreon sponsor by clicking on the link at the bottom of every post, I think, and on the left hand or right hand, right hand. column of Sideways. where Peter is. And yeah, we appreciate you guys very much. And I that's right. I need to post Melinda's rough draft of her Taylor Marshall article up for our Patreon sponsors, like I promised last week. And <laughs> you will lose so many Patreons. Back, to your, back to your regularly scheduled dunking on Taylor Marshall. Yeah, we will oh, back to that. Oh, God, no, please. We're trying to go in a more positive direction. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And next week, Mike may or may not be with us. We might. We'll see. We'll see how it goes, but we'll be back next Thursday with the next episode. We might have to have the women just take over, Melinda. We'll see. <laughs> I'm about it. I'm about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope everyone has a blessed uh, Holy Weekend Easter, and we will see you later. Bye. Bye.